G'day, everybody. Welcome to the Technical Tennis Podcast. My name is Glenn Hill. And I'm Jacob Meyer. And this morning, we're going to try something a little different format-wise from how we've typically been recording. We've done a lot of focus on kind of these smaller, more digestible, uh, very subject-specific topics. And today, we wanted to do something a little more in-depth. Yeah. So, I think one of our priorities up until this point has been in making sure that some of these topics about the the game really are digestible. And just personally, between us, we've been struggling with really making the podcast fit into the, the bigger picture of tactical tennis and everything else that we're doing with social media, with emails, and with coaching. And so it seems like it's an appropriate time to to just go deeper and see, you know, let's kind of open the podcast up and let it be a little bit more free-ranging um, and see if that fits better and allows us to, to deliver a better overall package across Instagram, across Twitter, across Facebook, across email, and obviously across the people that we're actually coaching on a regular basis. Absolutely. And so today what we were going to do is talk about the evolution of the forehand in across the last, you know, 30, 40 years of, of tennis, mostly at the professional level. And when I say that, I think that really what we, what we really want to do is explore some of the really big shifts in strategies and techniques about the forehand and ground strokes and serve and volleys, just using the forehand as kind of the focal point or the vehicle to examine these changes. So let me just jump in and, and ask you this then from the, from the beginning. Okay. Has, has the forehand really changed in the last 30 years? Yeah, I mean, I think we would both agree that the forehand has changed a lot in the last 30 years. <laughs> well, some, pe um, some people would say, no, I mean, fundamentally, it's the same. You know, it's low to high. You hit through the ball. You step into the ball. I mean, I know that if I go to my local pro, you know, non-specific, I'm going to hear essentially the same things that I heard 30 years ago. Yeah, but Jacob, there are people out there who still think the Earth is flat and that we never landed on the moon. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make those things true. That's a can right? of worms you're going to open right there, man. Yeah, I know. Well, I, and it's not to I don't I don't say that to ridicule anybody, but the point is, just because you believe something doesn't mean it's true. And we've both worked with players who will tell you, like absolutely guarantee that they're doing X on their forehand or their serve or their volley or whatever, and then you take video and show it to them. And I just love that moment where they're like, oh, I really was doing the thing that you've been telling me for the last hour that I've been doing. Um, and there's often, <laughs> there's often this disconnect, right? And, and so I think the, the, there's, there's obviously been changes. Uh, the question that I would ask you then is, what do you think? I mean, if we go back 30, 40 years, right, when guys are playing with wooden rackets, how would you describe the forehand back then? Yeah, well, so I think that's probably a good idea. I almost think about it like, how's the forehand even changed anywhere that we have access to video of anyone? 
<laughs> right? Which probably sure. goes back a little bit more than 30 years. But I kind of think of like open era tennis. Um, so for me, I think about it as, and, and I disclaimer, right? I'm not that old. I'm not 65 years old. Um, so I wasn't there. Um, I just got really interested in looking at this film and I guess in the nineties, which was really hard to get back in the nineties. Mm. Um, now it's a lot easier to just hop on YouTube and find all sorts of stuff. Right. Um, or hop on like CTC on Facebook and people post great stuff all the time. But um, for me, the way that I have digested that is I feel like there is this really direct philosophy of trying to make a straight line through contact and hitting through the ball in this linear fashion. And to me, that has really dramatically changed, especially ever since we watched Federer take out Sampras at Wimbledon. I, it was like this huge moment of what is this guy's name and why does it have two ers in it and what is he, <laughs> what is he doing like right but i think that probably for most people watching that was kind of the typical changing of the guard you know Sampras is getting older the new young guys coming through and I, I and i think back then it was much more people viewed that loss and Federer's win much more as an age thing, as in, you know, Sampras getting older, so his performance is declining, the new young hungry guys coming through. And uh, it was for most people probably less about, oh, wow, this, this, this Federer guy is doing different stuff, right? That's right. And, and that's a good point. I remember even listening to some of the commentary where it's, oh, is Pete ever going to be able to win again? You know, he's getting towards the end of his career. Now, of course, that's comical at this point, because even though Pete retired like soon after that, after he was able to win another slam, but I mean, Roger is is 38 and still competing for slams. And we used to talk about Pete when he was like 30, like, man, the guy's just washed up. He's got no chance. Um, But it was really clear to some of us, like Pete was still hitting the same unbelievable serves that he was hitting a year or two years or three years or four years beforehand. And there were some changes. The grass was slowing down, et cetera, et cetera. But clearly Roger was able to do things that we just hadn't seen people do in one package on a consistent basis. And Absolutely. that to me is what spoke to the, it was symptomatic that there was something fundamental about his approach to the game that was different. Yeah, and I think that 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 Sampras Federer match is a great reference because we see these two generations of forehands in that match, where Pete's kind of sitting on the cusp of this transitional point from. A, a linear to a rotational forehand, but maybe let's back up just a moment because to put all of this in context, you know, I asked uh, how you would describe the forehand, you know, 30 years ago, and you said very linear, like the idea of driving through the ball. Yeah, and and I think that's that's worth revisiting for a moment and kind of establishing a couple more points around that because I mean, one of the big differences between tennis now and tennis then is the equipment and. You know, how, how heavy was the average 
professional tennis player's racket in 1960 versus 2019, yeah. right? Well, yeah. In 60, there were wood rackets and they weighed um, 440 grams. They were 16 ounces, right? I mean, they were a pound. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, obviously that has gone down and dropped by 100 grams. Um, so that's gone down a couple of ounces, which may not seem like much, but when you're, when you're swinging at extension, it's a big deal. That's a lot. The forces, the forces that, that changes are, are significant. I mean, it carries all throughout the kinetic chain. Um, so what makes you even bring that up? Right. Because we're talking about how's the forehand evolved, right? What makes you go to the equipment so early in this conversation? Because I think that the the equipment really was a or changes in equipment was a were were driving there was turning points in how tennis evolved because we saw the forehand remain largely the same for a very long period of time for decades and then once we started to see the shift at the professional level of equipment from the wooden rackets over to the metal and then quickly to graphite. And then you wait a little while and see players that grew up with the newer technology. And then we start to see this massive change. And so I think that when we look at that wooden racket era and the fact that the athletes back then weren't doing the same kind of strength and conditioning work and training that the athletes now are doing, and then you're swinging this super heavy piece of wood and trying to be athletic and the courts were you know, there was a lot more grass back then, so serve volley was was a very prevalent strategy. Um, all these things lead to the the I, I wouldn't say the adoption of, but it's more I think the maintenance of this very linear swing strategy, right? I'm going to just get the racket behind the ball and drive straight through the ball, and a lot of uh, slice, very little wrist movement. Um, because I think, you know, when you when you start accelerating a racket that fast and you haven't done a ton of conditioning work, I don't, I don't know, Jake, what do you think about that and the shoulder and the wrist and the elbow? <laughs> right, yeah. Well, that's obviously in my wheelhouse. Um, and, and it's a problem, right? Like the, the heavier stuff that you're swinging past a certain point, then the more it becomes a problem as far as sustainability. So... You know, it's an interesting question to me because, um, like, I can pick up a wood racket right now, and I can swing it almost the same way that I would swing the racket that I actually play with, which is a, a Zeus 305-gram racket right now. Um, but the idea that I would have been able to develop the swing that I have now if I had grown up and only played with the wood is outrageous. I know for a fact that I never would have figured that out, right? Mm, I right. would have, I would have been I would have been focused on basically making sure my arm didn't fall off before I was 21. Um but would you even have thought about it like that? Well, If I give myself some benefit of the doubt, then I'd like to say yes. There's obviously a really strong chance that, that no, I never would have thought about it like that. My reservation is that 
you know this about me, right? Like, I have a healthy disrespect for authority and <laughs> and a healthy respect for authority as well that I had to learn over time. Um, and that really lends itself to, to a lot of experimentation, right? So I experimented with a lot of stuff. I mean, I grew up playing really and truly with the Prince Original Graphite. Um, so I was in that sort of era generation, even though that racket lasted a long time. But even then I was the, the dumb kid that would say like, no, like I want to play with the T2000, right? Like I want to try the long bodies. I want to try the ripsticks. I want to try, like I tried everything that I could and I would essentially try and innovate a, a bunch of things. Right. And I would copy the, the guys on TV and I would, find old film and get the old VHS tapes from old Wimbledon matches and try and swing like Johnny Mac and Jimmy Connors and Lendl and all these guys. And so I think I was kind of dumb enough that I would have tried to do things with the wood because, I mean, I kind of did that a little bit anyway. Um, but I just know like even swinging the T2000, just thinking about it hurts my elbow. Right? Yeah. Like, I remember having conversations when we were kids. Well, I mean, at that point, I was playing, I was a teenager when we were at the, the T2, but I remember having conversations with the guys that were, you know, middle aged that loved that frame. But I was like, dude, your forearm is three times the size of mine. And they'd be like, yeah, you're a little pipsqueak, you know? But like, that conversation is still in my head, right? So there's some part where, intuitively as an athlete we knew there's no way i'm going to be able to do this whether we were thinking for five sets or whether we were thinking for my health for five years i think hmm. when the rackets were that heavy it was apparent early enough on unless unless you grew up like a pete sampras or like an agassi or like a jimmy with a really heavy stick like that because i mean Guys like Andre are swinging wood, wood, wooden rackets that weigh a pound when they're four years old. Right. They're four years old, okay? Like, that's crazy. I mean, the kid only weighed 40 pounds, right? Mm -hmm. And he's swinging around that racket. So unless you're that strong at that young of an age and you're able to find a way to do that early, I think all the rest of us, it hit us pretty quickly like this kind of sucks i mean this this is hard this isn't going to work mm. i think that the, the the not working thing is key but to me i look at it less as a, an injury thing for most people that's that's kind of dissuading them from attempting too much experimentation and i and i think you're really onto something about the experimentation i mean everybody does that when they're kids right some people more than others but there's that drive to try something different. There's a drive to try something new. And I know that when I was a kid, I did try different things. But what tended to happen was, to me, I stuck with the strategies and the things that worked. You know, those were the things that you come back to. Uh, maybe you, you discover something new that works for you and you, you hold on to it. But then even then you were still would kind of seek out some other different way of doing things. And I think that there's very much a way in which 
if you are looking around and you're seeing the other people that are successful, whether it's on television or just locally, you know, your local club champion or whatnot, um, you're going to inherently use them kind of as the touchstone or, or the model on which we start trying to do different things. And if I've learned in a very linear strategy from the very beginning, because that's what everybody was teaching and all the successful players were doing by and large, th and then you try something different with this really heavy frame that's very difficult, then I think most people are very quick to abandon even the idea of it because it just doesn't work very well. And when, you're, when you try something new and it doesn't get results, most people stop trying it. Yeah. And they move on or they retreat back to the thing that has given them success. That's right. That's right. So, and so, you know, when, when we think about that, then there is this switch to, you know, the metal rackets and then very quickly to graphite. And, and then what do you see happening next? Well, graphite really changed things, right? I mean, even the graphite back then was heavier than what it is now. So. I mean, if you remember, like, Pete's old racket was a pro staff, and he had it weighted up, and we know that. But even the off-the-shelf stuff that you would just go get from the store, uh, it was still weighing in, let's say, above 330. It's not. It wasn't made the way it is now, where it's like 290, 290 coming out of the factory. Um, right. Why do you but, think that was? Uh, well, that comes down to the manufacturing and the materials, and, and there are really how they how strong they were able to make this stuff and over the years this is a complete tangent right but this is one of the reasons we're doing a new format so um that's really changed because basically when we had this shift from let's say let's call it out of wood because there's clearly a time when we left wood frames and we were experimenting with different materials right it didn't go just wood, aluminum, graphite. There's other stuff in there too. You know, we don't have to get into fiberglass and ceramics and all that kind of stuff. But essentially what was happening was the industry was trying to break ground and really improve what you were capable of doing with a racket. Mm -hmm. So they were trying to, to come up with something new, right? Like, the industry was being innovative and they were driven as, as a culture to make something that was better. Okay. Eventually that settled on graphite being the best material. And then since then, so we can go all the way back to the eighties with the, the prestige and the original graphite, um, et cetera. Since then, the industry hasn't done that and they're focused essentially on being able to manufacture that stuff and maximize their profits. So what we get is cheaper and cheaper frames that are using less and less graphite. Now, in some ways, the graphite is better quality than what it was originally because we just have the ability to make better stuff. Um, but you actually have a lot less material in, say, a frame that you get off the assembly line right now versus a frame that would have come off in 1989 or 1991. Sure. And that's, that's because, in part, we have better quality control and we can make that stronger, so therefore we're able to make it with less and therefore lighter. But really, that's all driven because 
the the major manufacturers right now. I mean, I have to hold out, you know, the Zeus guys, obviously, but the major manufacturers right now are focused on just being profitable. They're not. Sure. They're not trying. They're not focused on trying to make the best quality thing that they can. Right. So, and I, you know, one thing just to interject there, really interesting too, is I mean, I think a part of that as well was a, a sense of familiarity to customers. You know, I mean, when the T2000 the came out, this first metal racket, I mean, it's made of metal. They could have shaped it however they wanted, but they still followed the wooden racket format of that really long skinny neck and that tiny head. Uh, and, you know, with the, the switch to graphite, I think there was a, a sense of keeping also maybe a sense or the, that feeling of the heft that people were used to, uh, to some degree at least. And then over time, we see obviously the, the 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 frames start to change. But I think even just that initial weight loss on the graphite, eventually, I say eventually, starts to change the way future generations play. And I think in part because of that innovation, that drive to innovate and experiment and, and play around that kids have, right? I mean, if you're, let me ask you this: if I grow up with a wooden racket. I learned to play with a wooden racket with a linear kind of swing strategy. And then when I'm, you know, 28 years old, graphite comes out and I switch to a lighter one. Am I going to go back and completely change the way I play the game? Versus if I learn with the graphite when I'm a kid and get to play around with the right. experiment, then what happens? Right. So this is why, you know, I, I feel like I was lucky because I sort of came of age while this, this shift was happening. And so this is why we had, you know, 13, 14, and 15-year-old kids that all of a sudden were able to beat really established guys in their late 30s and, and mid-40s that were good players, right? I mean, these were guys that played Division One college that were really high-level players at the time. Um, and what we were finding was, oh, now a 14- or a 15-year-old kid has the level that took you 20 years to learn how is that possible right these guys were still holding on to their their old technique and i mean literally a lot of them were playing with t2000s right mm. and they could like they had a precision that we didn't have at that age they had a control to their game that we definitely didn't have right they were able to do certain things that we couldn't do but with the advent of the graphite frames and the fact that these kids had learned from, you know, age seven or whatever to age 14, they were able to handle the pace. They were able to return the serves. They were able to hit spins that were, were greater than what those guys could handle. And essentially, they were able to do things they weren't able to do either. And so they had a different set of skills. Um, but they ended out coming, they ended up yielding very similar levels of play, even if the, I would say like the wisdom of the game wasn't really there, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like tactically the 14 year old was a, a great player. He couldn't dissect the game the same way, but when they just went out toe to toe, we were able to play matches. So it's, it's, it's kind of neat being able to, to grow up with those guys. Right. Sure. But, yeah. I mean, there's so many places we can go here, right? Like we kind of, we kind of edged over this a moment ago, but as we talk about the industry changing and the advent of graphite frames, the other thing that happens is 
there becomes an established conversation now between certain people in the tennis industry and engineers that actually have to figure out how to make these graphite frames, right? Mm -hmm. So now all of a sudden, on a more widespread scale, you have engineers that have a physics background that maybe aren't so much you know, great tennis players, but they have a physics background saying things that are fundamentally true in physics, like, well, the more mass you have in the racket, the more power the racket's going to have. True. Right. I mean, so, I mean all, all other things being equal. Right. So, I mean, we could obviously do, I mean, we could talk for hours just on that statement, but the point is that that's when it started. So we shift down from wood and we lose a lot of mass when we go to graphite. And the guys that are actually working with Head, Wilson, Prince, etc., to make the graphite frames are turning around and saying, well, you know, mass equals power. Yeah, and I, and I think honestly, like, there's a question to me of how many of them were actually saying that. I mean, how many of uh, kind of a physicists, people really looking at that were a part of those conversations? Because I'm just, I'm not convinced personally that there, there's been really a ton of great science going on in the background when it comes to racket design for, for most of the last 40 <laughs> that's years. That's definitely true. Okay, that's definitely true. Even now, that's, that's true, right? That is not really how rackets are designed. It's not like NASA sits down to design tennis rackets, okay? That and there are some, some, some very bright people working on this stuff, for sure. And don't, don't get me wrong about that, but I'm just saying, like, yes. if we look back over the industry in the last, you know, 30, 40 years, I, I, I'm not convinced that there's, and I think part of this is maybe just that there's not that many people who are well situated in terms of having both the educational background, you know, the scientific knowledge and also the playing ability. And, and, and when I say ability, I also mean, think maybe relevance. Because it's, you know, there, I know some players who still are using 80s strategies and they're great players. You know, they're 60, 60 years old and playing really good tennis still using those right. older strategies. But, you know, they're, the lens through which they view equipment is going to be very different than the lens through which I view equipment. Because I've really adopted modern strategy i mean heck i obviously in my own game i'm trying to be still on the leading edge of where technique is going still tweaking still yeah. looking for the, those those little advantages and so that's going to also look, inform the way that we look at the science look tennis elbow is a problem now okay people still talk about tennis elbow but tennis elbow was a much bigger problem years ago right because you can imagine if you were a weekend warrior like my father was, who played doubles every weekend, you know, with his group of guys. That was it. That's what he did. But he did it for ages and ages and ages. But when he got to a certain age, probably like early 50s, late 40s, all of a sudden just playing tennis on the weekends, like his arm was killing him. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's not that he understood what was making it happen. But he knew, man, it hurts to swing a hammer when I'm doing home improvements, right. right? He'd go out to play, and it wasn't just him. 
but it was all his buddies except for the one guy that was lucky. And everyone had like really bad tennis elbow or really bad golfer's elbow. And that was prevalent. And, and they knew like, I just couldn't do it with that racket. And so then when for him, it was the Wilson sting came out and became available. All of a sudden he could play again because it was two ounces lighter. Mm. Right. And that two ounces was the difference between him being able to play and not being able to play. Right. So that doesn't mean that he played better. Right. It just, it just was, it just changed the, the impact. So I want to, I want to bring us back to the technique a bit here because I, I, there's some stuff I, I really want us to get to today. Uh, and so when we, you know, we're talking about the, the established players adopting new technologies tends not to change their technique very much. And, and we see this with Jimmy Connors, right? I mean, he's using very linear swing strategies, driving, you know, the old stepping, stepping in, driving through the ball. Uh, but interesting to me and the person I think I want to pivot onto as a contrast to Jimmy Connors is Ivan Lendl, who to me is <laughs> the first men's number one we see who, where we really start to see a genuine shift in technique, right? Because I think when, when McEnroe comes along, like McEnroe is still using a, a, a pretty linear strategy, um, and, and, and Lendl's there. And Lendl's, you know, he's, this is a baseline guy. And, and, but it's a baseline guy who, who was very much, I think, driven to experiment even as an adult. He's very much driven to innovate even as an adult, which a lot of people leave behind. But for him, it was, I never got the sense that with, with Lendl, it was playful innovation the way that kids do it. It was very <laughs> targeted, you know. He I want is to... very play. He is very playful, to be fair. Right. Just I'm just saying, but he was also he was also the first guy that really they did did a, a genuine strength and conditioning program on the men's side. You know, I mean, he was a very. I think it it always struck me as he was a very organized, driven player, and extremely driven. Yeah, and so I think he adopted that. You know, he saw that with the new technology, with graphite rackets, that there was opportunities and began to tweak things, right? And so we, if we look at his forehand, we start to see elements for the first time that are being used by players that are at the very, very top of the game. And, and you know, the thing that really, and, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, the thing that first struck me, and I, I used to look at this as, as a big deal, and I think it still is, but now I look at his forehand and see some other elements too, but this is the first time I see guys, somebody at that level using what, you know, what I term wrist lag, but really letting there be a lot more movement in the wrist through the stroke. <laughs> well, yeah, he had to because he was swinging it. I mean, he was swinging a sledgehammer is the way I always joke about it, right? But, you know, Lendl was interesting because I think he represents this almost unique time or moment in the generations because he bridges uh, some really strong elements of what I think of as the, the next generational technique, which is to shift from this linear paradigm to a rotational paradigm. And, but he holds on to the idea that he really wants to swing the heaviest racket he can. Mm. Right. And the thing, the reason that that is, is so interesting is that, those two things aren't necessarily coherent, right? 
So you're 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 basically prioritizing the mass of your frame over the technique now. And we see it. Because you're saying and you can see it. And so yeah, he has lag. In some way you it wouldn't surprise me if he said, Well, I'm I'm trying to move my wrist as little as I can. Because he might actually be fighting really hard to be stable there. Mm. And it's just tough because he's swinging pretty fast and he's swinging very heavy, right? Now, that being said, I don't know. I, I, I haven't talked to Vaughn about this specifically, but it's it would be a great conversation to have for sure. Yeah, I'd be really curious um, to see you know what he would say about that because we see things you know like uh, the circular backswing. Like there's it's it's there's a lot more curves and circles in this stroke than we traditionally saw. Yeah, I think what Yvonne figured out, and this is where, I mean, remember, right? This is a guy that made so many finals of slams without winning one, okay? Now, obviously, you know your tennis history. He he ended up winning more than one, right? The guy won a lot. But there was a time when he was just getting there and not winning. And you have to give him credit for innovating himself right like i don't think and and hopefully i'm not doing a disservice to anyone here because i'm sure that he had relationships with people that were really important but i don't think well let's just say it like this there was no internet it wasn't like he could just go online and read from some famous coach online here's how you do it and he just had to be willing to try things and work on it himself, mm. right? This to me was real innovation where he had to experiment while he was still playing, mind you, while he is one of the best players in the world. He has to really experiment and find new ways to do things. And so in my mind, he's the guy at the top of the game that figured out how to swing a heavy frame more quickly. Right. And he did it by using different technique. Sure. So this is something that always, I mean, we see now, I mean, you, you know, obviously that I travel a lot on the tour and that I still make a point to watch juniors and to watch futures. And I spend plenty of time in challengers, right? And plenty of time at the slams. But looking for guys maybe that aren't on the tour, that aren't so easy to see, that are doing things that look like, oh man, that guy might have figured something out. And maybe he just doesn't have the rest of the game. Like Yvonne had the total package. For for right. his era, yeah. Yeah. Well yeah, well I'm saying like he had the total package in the sense that I mean this guy's, you know, would making dozens of slam finals. Right. I as remember. opposed to there could have been a guy that was hundred and fifty in the world that he used as a practice partner that could have been hitting an unbelievable forehand but couldn't return, serve wasn't that great, backhand wasn't good enough or whatever. Sure. And we would never know. Yeah. Those I when I said like really he was the first person you see starting to use some of these elements at the top of the game. Um, and I remember Andre talking about how influential 
Ivan was on him because Ivan was the first guy to come along that would just like crush the ball off both sides. Yeah, right? that's funny because I think of on like I, me, not just me. I mean, a lot of us think of Andre as being that guy, right? But really, Ivan was that guy a whole generation earlier. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know what? What's interesting to me, and and this is the way I think that learning happens through a culture right through like the tennis culture it really took someone like Yvonne to come through who was crushing the ball off both sides in order for then there to be someone like Agassi who in some ways gets credit for that because I think they're they're kind of markers in in a timeline Agassi marks the time where for whatever reason Everybody else looked at him and said, okay, well, we have to work on that too, right? Mm. So after Andre, the standard for the backhand on the tour raises. Oh, absolutely. And and I think that's interesting because he's the first guy to me. I mean, we see these rotational strategies start to creep into the game and on the forehand side. And I think it's for some people easier there. Maybe maybe most people. I don't know if that's a fair statement or not. you know, and the person I was going to bring up next was Pete, because Pete to me is like Andre plus a little bit, right? Like he's a little more rotational, but you see him kind of still clinging to, and and you've heard Lansdorp talk. I mean, like there's he's still clinging to this driving idea of you know drives yeah. the racket through the ball, but but you see a lot right. more rotation in the hips and you know the pelvis and more rotation in the shoulders. And it's almost like when I look at the slow motion video of Pete now, it's almost like he's forcing this linear finish onto a rotational stroke. Yes. Okay. Look, I got to interrupt you because I'm so glad that you brought up Robert Landsdorf, who has worked with several, several top champions and done an unbelievable job coaching these guys, right? To me, Landsdorf was really, really good at getting people to make good contact. Mm, Yeah. Okay. Pete is one of the best ball strikers ever if you have not seen him live go watch a champions tour match wherever if, you, if he's still gonna play some right but like you have to see this guy make contact with the ball it's so good even now it's so good yeah right i think people don't understand that and so i don't think that landstorm necessarily gets the credit for having i mean he has more incredible ball strikers than any other coach I can think of. Now that I don't know all of them and that might be wrong. As far as pure, like yeah, just pure great contact. Yeah. Pure contact. So good. Right. Like the point is he didn't just have one guy. He didn't just have two guys. He didn't just have three guys. Like he had a handful of the best ball strikers ever. Right. And that includes on the girl side. Oh, Davenport. I mean, you're talking about Maria and Davenport. I mean, Lindsay just like her ball striking is unbelievable. unbelievable. Right. Now, very linear, very linear, right? But to me, Pete, I think, is this fascinating case study because it seems like he's a great example of someone who is forcing something that he learned. So he is intentionally trying to do things that are actually limiting him a little bit when you see him hit from the middle of the court. Right. So we have to divide Andre a little bit into young Andre and then all the Andres after young Andre. Because, 
remember, this is a guy who was still competing for slams and having to take cortisone injections into his back because his sciatica was so bad, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to have strong back muscles and glutes and hamstrings and adductors, et cetera, in order to rotate the way he used to. But if you look at, say, 19, 20, 21-year-old Andre, he rotated way more than he did in his 30s. Right, just physically And there's a reason for that. Well, Physically, he was limited. So if you look at then young Pete versus young Andre, right, these guys actually, the longer they're on the tour, not just because they get older and a little bit beat up, but the longer that they're essentially coaching themselves, the more they're going back to the coaching that they heard when they were younger, and they're limiting their rotation, right? Now, they can compensate for that because they had some of the best timing ever, and they're still hitting a super clean ball. But what really gets me is Pete, and this is what I want you to – I want to hear what you think about this because – I was just talking to one of the guys that used to compete against him um, last week, actually, at the Open, right? Mm -hmm. And he he was still joke about it because he was, you know, he's at the Open. He's watching these young guys play, and he watched some guys hit some running forehands. And, you know, their opponent had come to the net, and they were able to get a volley and whatever. And he just laughed, and he said, I kid you not. Sampras would have passed that guy a hundred times in a row with his running forehand. Right. Right. His running forehand was so good. And to me, it was so much better than his forehand from the middle of the court. Yeah, the for sure. The question is, what made it so much better? Like, how could a guy hit a forehand on the run better than when he had time in the middle of the court? Right. But well, he just employs different strategies, right? Right. So what was different about his technique? That that could happen. Are you, is that is that rhetorical? Or are you asking me? No, I'm. I mean, I'm asking. I, this is something that I've sort of thought about, but I've never heard discussed in a public forum. Yeah, and I haven't had the conversation with you. So, yeah, I mean, in my mind, I feel like here's a guy who, from the middle of the court, kind of hits it the way he thinks he's supposed to hit it, and when he's on the run, he's almost forced to just be an athlete. Right, and that, and he just does he just does what he has to do, and it's unbelievable. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's true. I mean, I think the the thing is, once you get Pete on the run, he he, there's, you know, the funny thing to me is a lot of times Pete on the run hits a, a forehand that is more reminiscent of Rafa on the run than the way Pete hits his forehand from the middle of the court. <laughs> You know, that's funny, right? Well, because yeah, because when you, yeah. you when when you watch him hit on the run, he the the way that he you know rotates gets like hip rotation and pelvis rotation, and the way he kind of just lets the arm swing in a more natural pattern, uh, as opposed yeah. to kind of forcing that that follow through that he had. Um, it, it it all of a sudden it just becomes like one generation further down the line than his normal forehand, right? When we look at these. If I look at forehands as being generational, we go from, you know, Connors to Lendl to Sampras to, you know, maybe like Guga to Federer. It's, he, he, like he jumps a generation suddenly when, yeah, when you make him run. I mean, I'll tell you right now, like, 
I've gone back and looked at the film from him, right? And 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 just jumped on and just said like, I want to see a a highlight reel of Sanford hitting forehands on the run, and you can find that on YouTube now, right? Yeah. And I mean, you you have to realize this guy is playing with a very heavy, like a fourteen ounce, eighty five square inch frame racket with a big big grip and all natural gut. There's no Luxalon here, right? Okay. There's no polyester string. This is all natural gut strung up very tight. And he's hitting angles with velocity, right, that most guys on the tour today do not hit in matches. Now, I'm not going to say they can't hit in practice because most of them, a lot of them at least can, right? But in matches, they do not hit at all, right? Like the angles that Pete were was hitting when the spin he was generating and the sheer velocity on the ball matches up with what guys are doing right now. And that was twenty years ago. Right. Thirty years ago. Yeah. I mean that was thirty years ago. Well, but ago. this is the thing, right? I mean when and I and I've had this conversation so many times online that at by the time Pete's coming along, I mean there's there's Yes, we get a spin boost from Lux, but the spin boost from Lux over, you know, like a, a full bed of natural gut. I mean, it's significant, but it's not, it's not, I don't think game changing in the same way that the switch from wooden rackets to graphite rackets was. You know, at this point, like we're not, we're not seeing between Pete and now really any, any evolutionary changes in racket technology. You know, we have these minor tweaks. And and I mean, just as background for people, like my my undergraduate degree was physics, my master's degree was material science engineering, um, so I do know a little bit about this stuff. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm just going to repeat that because that's materials science engineering, which most of us don't know what that is, right? right? But that I mean, that means that you've actually studied materials, like what's the difference between a polyester string and a nylon. Yeah, string, and my look, my research, my research wasn't in in polyester strings. My research was in like rare earth molybdates and nuclear applications. But the point being, like, yeah, we we studied, and it wasn't just what? the difference of well, why are these? <laughs> what the hell is a rare earth? What the hell is that? The, the point is, look, we're not, we're not. It's not like, hey, this is glass and this is this is metals. We're we're studying and doing research on designing new materials, which is exactly you know what has happened with string technology is the design of new materials using existing our existing understanding of what makes things tick from a materials perspective. And and look, there's been in the last twenty years we've seen real evolution in string technology. We haven't seen real evolution in graphite technology or or, or racket technology since the the Prince Graphite, which was released in nineteen. 80. And the reality yeah. is, when you look at, at then to now, I mean, that was a... Was it really 1980? Yeah, I think the first one actually came out in 79, but we're talking about, uh, you know... I thought it was like 80. No, 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 no. No. Um, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, 1980, and we're talking about an open string bed. Hey, guess what's come around and become popular again? An open string bed. Uh, because it gives more spin. No, no, no. Oh, we got we to gotta back up here, because I this is a pet peeve of mine. Right, it's very hard to find rackets on the market. You can't find a single racket on the tour today that has the open string bed 
that that printer. Right, but th- I mean, Wilson did do their research and they did come out with you know their their spin version of some of their frames, which was an open speed bed. Uh, you know, which is great. They just haven't been adopted. No, on for sure. Way, well, but and you understand some of the, the driving forces behind that. People people are resistant. People are comfortable. They're they're making money. They're getting wins. You know, they're not. A lot of guys aren't driving for those changes. A lot of of the the female players aren't driving for that change. But you know, the point is. We haven't seen any big shift in racket technology in the last 20, 30 years. We've seen a shift. Actually, it's almost coming up on 40 years now with the rackets. We've seen a shift in the string technology, and it's you know something on the order of a 20 to 30% string gain, depending on who you are and how you string your rackets and what your technique is, right? But so, so the right. point is for Pete, it, when he does employ more real, like genuinely modern, like current moment, uh, technique strategies with the forehand, yeah, he sees comparable velocity and spin. And coming back to Lansdor, like his quality contact was so high, and that's a foundational idea that I think Lansdor was so great at that gets lost a lot of the time on the serve and on the ground strokes of people these days. Is is that? Their ability to impart velocity and spin is limited by the quality of our contact, by how much of the ball that we get. And Lansdorp really preached this idea of getting as much of the ball as possible with the strings. Not cutting the edge of the yeah. ball, but getting as much of the ball as possible with the strings. And, and then, you know, essentially, what I think about it in terms of like just ripping the spin onto the ball while coming through the heart of it. And so, yeah, he's able to get all this spin and, and get this velocity in a way that, you know, almost nobody could then. I mean, there's obviously a handful of guys that could, but there's a reason why Pete won 14 slams when nobody had ever done that before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, there, there was. And it's interesting that you, like, you noted Guga as one of those moments in evolution, and the racket technology hasn't fundamentally changed, but Guga marks that moment when guys switch to luck. Yes, he does. Guga was, he was the guy that everyone else on the tour looked at and said, wait a minute, this guy wasn't close to winning slams and all of a sudden he's killing us and he hasn't changed that much what happened. And they realized, oh, here was a guy whose game was much more perfectly suited to the new technology. So when he picked it up, he probably could tell very quickly, oh, man, I can do all sorts of stuff with this. This is great. Yeah. Where, you know, a lot of the guys that were on the tour remember playing against him, and they were frustrated because they had essentially developed their game to play with gut, and they weren't able to take advantage of the Lux, and they weren't willing to make the changes and do the experimentation necessary to learn because certainly they were good enough athletes. Right. right? And, th- and there's a way in which, I mean, like, when when we talk about that, you know, Lux. If if you put Lux in in Jimmy Connors' racket, or or even let's say um, John McEnroe back in the day when he when he had switched to the Dunlop and he's playing with graphite, like let's be clear, like Lux isn't going to add thirty percent spin to McEnroe's forehand. It's not going to add thirty percent spin to McEnroe's backhand. It would probably add thirty percent spin to his serve, though, right? And yeah, that's because the serve was his serve good. was genuinely good even in in modern terms. And yeah. so there's a way in which like 
switching to Lux isn't some magical fix to people that's going to automatically give them some huge gain in spin. It's something that if you swing the right way and if you have the technique for it to be useful, it it does make a difference. But you look at Kurt and play, and he this is this guy to me who's the first one. I mean, I think I, I shouldn't maybe say that because I think like young Andre really did as well. But um, he's he's got really like genuinely full rotational strategies on both forehand and backhand. And you know, when we talk about the old low to high finish on on the ground strokes and especially on the forehand, like Gustavo is the first guy I can remember that f- went low to high to low, which is I right. think the natural way for people to swing on that forehand when we are genuinely rotating, right? It, it's it, it's interesting to me that, yeah, and he's this first guy to adopt, adopt Lux, and all of a sudden he gets all this spin and he's got this power, and yeah, he, he starts beating everybody at the French. And, uh, you know, this, this this is another kind of turning point. Or, or, or I, I, I should say Andre's probably more the turning point, but Gustavo's more like this, hey, this is this is continuing to happen, right? And then almost in, in a very similar fashion, along comes Fed not, not long after. And, and Fed's hugely rotational on the forehand in a way that we'd never seen before. Yeah, well, and the back. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think there's still – so this is maybe – maybe this is too soon in the conversation to go here. But there's still this element to me where <sighs> there's this interaction that happens, right? There's a, a back and forth between – coaches and players and tour players and their coaches tour players and each other tour players and older tour players and it it really matters how we talk about these things right so if you if you think that the players don't talk to each other and that they don't talk to other people about tennis then like, first of all, you're just missing it, right? And then that stuff has an impact, right? So there's a way in which the older generations don't necessarily know how to talk about stuff that's brand new, okay? Right. Like, it, it's it's impossible. It's brand new. It's like we haven't even seen it yet. So how can we talk about it, okay? So, like, I remember when we watched Gugo win the first French that he won, you know, people were talking about, like, his high elbow. Like, this is crazy, right? The guy's elbow is high on his one-handed backhand. What is that? Nobody was talking about the way he was using his hips. I see. I mean, I'm sure somebody was, but it never became a, a widespread, broad conversation, right. right? It became, oh, he's really wristy. Yeah. Right? And this is a fun... This is a fundamental issue that we have in tennis that everyone seems to be as a culture, right? Not all individuals, because if you're one of the coaches that doesn't talk about this, then kudos to you. But as a culture, everyone's focused on the end of the kinetic chain, on the flashy stuff that grabs our eyes' attention, right? Look how wristy Guga is with his forehand. Oh, look where he finishes. Oh, look how wristy Federer is with his forehand. Instead of, like, look at how strong Roger Federer's legs are. This guy's legs were just, like, they, 
I mean, he's taller, so they look a little different. But if he stood next to Michael Chang, then, you know, like he held his right. own. And Chang's tray, tree legs. Oh, we talked about them back in the day. I, I mean, that was a talking I, I point. I think they were actually tree trunks. Right? I mean, it's like, possible. I'm not sure Michael Chang. I still Chang won't roll it out to this day. <laughs> like, and, and I'll tell you, I'm not going to say who, okay? But I, I'm going to harken back to Yvonne here, right? And literally at one of the slams a couple of years ago, Yvonne looked at one of my guys and made fun of his legs. And it was like, dude, I don't know how you can be so good with your legs that small. <laughs> right. And I, I couldn't help it. I was cracking up because, I, I mean, I, had, I waited until Yvonne left. I'm not going to you know, embarrass the guy. But, like, I told him, I mean, hey, like, I'm, I'm serious. Like, I've, I've told him, like, you're, you're basically swinging as fast as you can right? Without getting stronger right. legs. I mean, the difference between what you can do and what Roger can do is the fact that Roger's legs are, are twice the size of yours and, and they're stronger, right? So, I mean, strength isn't di directly related to size, but at some point it definitely Oh, for matters. sure, for sure. Um, so, Sorry, yeah, I was just going to say, like, I, I, I think this is probably a point where we need to, to start tying up, but um, I mean, we've we've roughly talked through from wooden rackets up to, to Roger Federer. And I mean, I, next time we get on, I'd, I'd really love to dive more into this. You know, we're talking about hip rotation, dive more into some of the, some of the rotational strategies, and then also more about the backhand and the serve and tie, tie some of this stuff together. Yeah, that sounds great. So this will serve as sort of part one of the evolution of the forehand and how the forehands evolved. I guess we kind of accidentally just went through some. Well, I mean, but this there. is the point, right? But we wanted a more free flowing format to be able to explore these ideas as they came up and 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 let the conversation, hopefully, to 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 our listeners steer into steer itself into some interesting areas. And look, folks, we're not going to when we when we do formats like this, it's it's a little bit of an exploration on our part too. Some of the stuff we're talking about, we are very deeply familiar with. Sometimes when we start to explore some of these things, we're going to talk about things where it's, there's a little bit of supposition and, and hopefully we do a good job of, of making it clear when, yes, this is something that we feel very strongly is true versus, Hey, this is just my thought on, on this thing, but I don't know for sure. Um, but we're, we're definitely going to, I think, wander through some interesting territory over, over the next few podcasts. Um, and definitely. Definitely, definitely. If we make mistakes, or let me rephrase that, when we make mistakes, <laughs> please email us and point it out and correct us because obviously this is, I mean, this is all stuff that we care about and we want to know. Um, and if you don't feel like being nice and emailing it to us, then hop onto Twitter and just embarrass us in front of Tweet everybody. at us. That works too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, but we did, would love to have um, feedback. But, I mean, like this is, this is obviously a little bit different and it, probably the next one will be even more different and, and maybe significantly longer even. I mean, you, who knows? You might, you might download the next episode and find a three hour wandering uh, conversation about everything related to tennis. But uh, we would love to hear back if, uh, you know, what you think about, about this and, and some of the things that we've talked about today. And, uh, you know, do, do sign up for the email because, you know, Jacob, we, we've been talking a lot about learning and, and models and things like that in some of the emails lately. And I think that there's important ideas there that we, you know, we won't always get to the same things with, with across the different platforms. Right. Um, and so, you know, that, yeah, I mean, this has been, 
this has been one of the issues that we touched on in the intro, right? Of that we want to find ways to make sure that you get the things that really are going to help you with your own game. And right now they're a little bit disjointed from the email and the social media side and the podcast side. So if you're not familiar with the fact that all those other things exist, then really like check them out and you're going to start to see them tied together more and be more meaningful for yeah, you. Absolutely. Right? And like emails come probably three, maybe four times a month is, is the plan. And then, you know, you'll see us on the other social media platforms as well. And, uh, you know, hopefully there'll be some, so another, another recording opportunity soon. And we will dive more into, into the stuff that we've been talking about today and, and whatever else we wander into as we go through it. Yeah. So we've, you know, we have lives, unfortunately that we have to get to, but part two of this, I think we're going to dive more into, um, continuing this conversation, but it seems like we're going to go more into the techniques specifically, how these things have really changed, what these strategies look like. Um, is there any other reminders that we need to give ourselves? No, I think here? just, you know, reach out to us via email, glenn at tacticaltennis.com. I'm Jacob at tacticaltennis.com. We're at tacticaltennis on Twitter and uh, on Instagram. Instagram. And, uh, you know, you can reach me on Twitter at glenn s hill. And, you know, we look forward to hearing from you all, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks, guys.